So here's where we're at. Whether it's the Bible that's on your app or the Bible that's in your lap, go ahead and open to the New Testament book of Acts. So the New Testament starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. It's not that complicated to find, but what we're doing is we are in a uh, we're in a series right now where we're doing a flyover of the book of Acts. And if you're new, here's a quick review. I want to catch you up. The book of Acts is the dramatic sequel to Luke's gospel. It's basically all that Jesus began to do and teach that is now continued through his church. And before we parachute into Acts chapter 8, let me just share with you some of the plot movements that have happened since we were together last time. Week 1, here's what we saw in Acts chapter 2. We saw how the Holy Spirit, that's the presence of God, don't get weird about it, it's the presence of God, fills his people, the word of God is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, and then the church is formed and uh, at least 3,000 people were immediately baptized on that day in response to the gospel. So that was Acts chapter 2. But last week we saw in Acts chapter 6 how problems are inevitable, but progress can still happen. You know, you've probably got some problems in your life. Maybe you've got some pressures in your life. Even when the church faces persecution, what can we do? We can still make progress. That was Acts chapter 6. And so today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be introduced uh, basically to two ordinary men who God used in extraordinary ways, Stephen and Philip. So we're introduced to Stephen and Philip in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. We saw them last week. And they were two of the seven men who were appointed to support the apostles. Those were the men who were eyewitnesses and who walked with uh, Jesus during his time on earth. So they support the apostles and they help care for the widows. Basically, what they're doing is they're caring for the least, they're caring for the last, those who, who have great needs in the church, And here's what I want you to see about these men before you see how God uses them. They were deeply invested and deeply involved in the life of the church. And I think this says a lot. This says a lot about how the mission of God moves through the world. It's by the witness, by the way, of normal people, of everyday people. You know, for for pastors, sometimes it's like it's your job to be good, but everybody else, it's like you're good for nothing. And so that ought to count for something. A little pastor humor. I thought that that was very good. So basically, maybe that will land later on. But basically, that's who people, uh, the people that God uses. He works through people who just say, I'm not a professional. Like, I'm not paid to be good. I'm not paid to be a Christian. I just, I do this. I talk about this because I love Jesus. And I, I want others to love Jesus. And that's the case with Stephen and Philip. And so the bulk of uh, chapters 6 and 7 details a provocative sermon. Uh, provocative meaning it draws out a response that this guy named Stephen preaches where he accuses the religious leaders of killing Jesus. And it turns out in this moment, just like in our moment, that speaking the truth can get you in a lot of trouble. So he stood before a kangaroo court of false witnesses who sentenced him to death by stoning. And so what happens with Stephen is he becomes the first of what we would call martyr. It was someone who was murdered for their faith. And it it turns out that the word witness actually comes from the Greek word martyr. And so to be a witness is to make sacrifices. To be a witness is to understand, hey, I am going to count the cost, and I'm still going to walk in sacrificial faith. And so we're supposed to read this and go, and here's the connection. This looks a lot like a replay of Jesus' life. When I see the way that Stephen was treated, 
It's a man who's caring for the poor, he's preaching the truth, he's falsely accused, and he's sentenced to death. And here's what we see. This is a, a deep concept right here. As Stephen is being stoned, the account, it pans to heaven. And we see Jesus doing something remarkable and unusual. Notice how Jesus in Scripture is typically described as seated at the right hand of God. But in this account, it says that he is standing. Now, let me ask you this question. What gets you out of your seat and on your feet? And, you know, other than your fitness device telling you that you've been sitting for too long and you need to get up and move, okay, that that would be one thing. But think about what is it that moves us to stand up and cheer and celebrate? I can think of a few, a few things. A soldier who is coming home from battle, having fought bravely. I think about a, a student who has graduated and, walk, and walking the stage. Or an athlete who just completed an unbelievable game and performed incredibly well. Or an a- actor who pulls off a great performance. Well, let me ask you this. What gets a standing ovation from Jesus? It's very simple. We see it with Stephen. It's when our lives look like a replay of his. So uh, our daughter Eleanor, she came to me this week and she said something that I thought was going to be charming, but it was actually a little embarrassing. She's like, I'm just like daddy. And I was like, oh, I'm looking forward to this encouragement. And, uh, (laughs) you know, pride goes before the fall. And she says, yeah, I got big ears and big toes. (laughs) And I'm like, not encouraging at all. (laughs) Same idea. Same idea. We want to say, I want to look just like Jesus, except reverse the virtues to positive instead of like big ears and big (laughs) toes. But when we say, hey, you are sent, that's exactly what we mean. You are sent to image what? The life, the love, and the labor of Jesus. And so what we see is that's happening in Stephen's life. It's going to happen in Philip's life. Is it happening in your life? Stephen's execution becomes a catalyst that drives the good news of the gospel outside of Jerusalem. Take a look. Let's pick up in Acts chapter 8, verse 1b. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions. So at this point, you would think, okay, it's been a good run, but now we're done. This, this, this whole movement, this whole Jesus thing, it's over. Now we're running the risk of losing our lives. If we go on doing this, it's over. But now those who were scattered, verse 4, went about preaching the word. So here's one of the patterns that is woven into the growth of the church over the centuries, over millennia. It's that persecution, that problems actually lead to progress for the church when we respond to them in faith. And that's what we're going to see here in just a few moments. The church continued to spread. It, it was not silenced. And here's a way to, kind of a silly way to think about, like, how does the church respond to pressures and problems? Have you ever seen one of those bot bags? It's like this little inflatable toy that you, like, give to kids, and it's got, like, this weight at the bottom of it, and it's hollow on the inside. And so, like, you go to punch that thing, and it goes down, but then it ricochets right back up. The church is like a bot bag. Whenever we get hit, whenever we get cut, we're, we're resilient. And we're coming right back up to continue doing what God says is good and what God calls us to. And I just want to ask you this question. What happens to your faith when, it, when you get knocked down? What has your faith looked like over the past several years when we've all been getting knocked down? It's that old adage, a faith that can't be tested 
is a faith that can't be trusted. And we apply this logic to everything. It's like an employee who can't be tested, a student who can't be tested, a marriage that can't be tested, a friendship that can't be tested. It's one that can't be trusted. The same applies to faith. Here's what happens with this guy named Philip who we're about to meet. Again, he's an ordinary guy with extraordinary faith, and he's among those who are scattered by the persecution. But instead of tossing the towel, he takes the same message that got Jesus crucified and Stephen stoned and courageously carries it to a place called Samaria. If you know anything about Samaria, you know this was a place that Jews avoided. There were racial tensions. There was this really divisive history there. And what he does is he carries the gospel to Samaria, and this is the first post-resurrection mission trip that we read about in Scripture. And the response that he gets in Samaria is very different. It's citywide revival as he preaches the gospel. He has to call the apostles in. And I love this. One of my favorite verses in Scripture. I pray this will be true for our church. Acts chapter 8, verse 8. It says, there was much joy in that city because the gospel made it there. May there be much joy in the Grand Strand because the gospel is here. And so what we see happening is that this leads us to Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. And this has to be my favorite story in the book of Acts. And here's why. Because it's the, it's the uh, probably the most complete picture in all of Scripture of how, how faith becomes personal and how faith goes public. And that's the whole idea today. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write this down. Real faith in Jesus is both personal and public. And if we're being honest, maybe you're here, you're a Christ follower, and you have a really hard time being public about your faith. You, know, you, you agree with everything privately, even personally, you would say, yes, I believe salvation alone, by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, I agree with all that. But it's something that's like compartmentalized. And I just want to think about like, what are the things that we go public with? Well, we go public with things that we're proud of. We're, we're proud of our yard. We're proud of our kids. We're, we're proud of our, our stuff. We're, we're proud of... Uh, uh, all these things, that maybe, maybe it's the dog, but we have a really hard time bringing up and talking about Jesus. And I get, we don't want to be those people who just unnecessarily offend or who come across as pushy or ignorant, you know, all those labels and stigmas that get attached to Christianity. But I want you to think about it this way. Imagine, and married couples, go back to your wedding day. Go back to when it was that you guys tied the knot. And just imagine that, you know, the guy goes to propose, ladies, and he says, hey, will you marry me? And you're like excited. It's like, this is going to be great. But then he says, but, but a, few, a few things just to put around this. Um, there's not going to be a ring, and there's not going to be a ceremony, and we're going to keep this just between you and I. Well, at that point, you're going to say, well, something's wrong right here. That's not the way that this is supposed to work. That's called being friends with benefits, that's, that's not being public. That's being very private. And I'm afraid that in our Western culture, our modern moment, we treat Jesus like a friend with benefits. We want all the benefits of salvation, but we don't want to go public and be proud about what he is doing in our lives. So Acts 8.26, we're going to see how we can be personal and public with our faith. Take a look. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go. Now that's important. Where is Philip at this point? He's in a place where revival is happening. He's in Samaria. 
And God says, hey, leave the place where God is working and go to a place where I'm not going to give you a whole lot of details. Toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. So here's what you need to know about Gaza. It was an eyesore, out-of-the-way little town, 165 miles from where Philip is at this point, by the way. And he, does, he can't call an Uber to get him there quick. He can't get on a plane to get there in a couple of hours. But Gaza was like those sketchy redneck towns that you pass on your way into Myrtle Beach. You know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like there's one stoplight, there's a Hardee's, and you can hear banjo music playing in the background. That's what Gaza was like. And then to thicken the plot, this was Philistine territory. You guys heard the story David and Goliath? Goliath was a Philistine. And so he was going to a place that was full of people who had this history of hatred and violence toward Jews. Point being, this would have been a very undesirable assignment for Philip. He would have had to walk 165 miles in plus 100 degree weather to a desert place full of his enemies with more questions than answers. So put yourself in the sandals of Philip and ask yourself, what do you do right here? Well, what does Philip do? Verse 27, and he rose and went. That's faith. Faith is the eyesight of the soul. Faith, see, our world says that wisdom and logic would be believing or uh, seeing is believing. If I see it, then I can believe it. But faith says, faith sees more than others and faith sees before others. Faith is, I believe and then I will see. And so that's how Philip is operating right here through faith. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. So here's a few things geographically for you to know. Today, Ethiopia is a small, a small country in Africa. But in biblical times, Ethiopia represented the entire region that was south of the Nile River. And so he's basically talking about all of Africa right here. This guy, was he was the treasurer of the entire region. He controlled the money. He was a powerful guy, and he was a eunuch. So basically, to give clarity, a eunuch means that he had been castrated. And it's not for the reasons that we see that happening in today's modern moment. This was not gender dysphoria. This was not reassignment surgery. Basically, this was the royal strategy for making sure that if you're going to work closely with the queen, you don't get too frisky and you don't get too many broad ideas. So you can just hashtag scandal prevention strategy right beside the eunuch because that's what this was. And I understand, you know, there's questions about this stuff. And I just want to, I've shared this before. I'm very responsive to email. If you have questions about this, it's Tanner at coastwaychurch.com. I'll get back to you shortly, but uh, no more time for that. Verse 27b, he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So for, for whatever reason, this eunuch was sincerely curious about the Jewish God. And it begs the question, why? He's got all these gods. They, they worship different types of animal gods. They worship different types of sun gods in Ethiopia. But for whatever reason, all of those gods had left him empty and left him searching. And so he had gone to Jerusalem seeking God, verse 28, and was returning seated in his chariot. So, again, geography is helpful. The journey from Ethiopia to Jerusalem was 1,200 miles. And this eunuch official, he was royalty. So I can tell you one thing, he's not walking. 
So when you think about a chariot, think about a carriage. Don't think about that thing that you see on Cinderella that's being pulled by a horse or got those big like uh, uh, tires on it. Uh, think about a carriage that is hoisted on the shoulders of four men. So he is being carried on the shoulders of about four men for 1,200 miles, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. You can't make this up. He goes to Jerusalem. He gets a copy of uh, the Old Testament a prophetic book, Isaiah, which, by the way, Bible scholars call Isaiah the fifth gospel because it gives the clearest explanation of Jesus' substitutionary life and death in all of the Old Testament. And this is very important because at the time, we need to remember where, where were we in history right here. The New Testament had not been written. They didn't know about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John yet. And so somehow, some way, he's reading the most Jesus-centered book of the Bible. Verse 29, And the Spirit said to Philip, Let's stop right there. We're not sure how the Holy Spirit spoke to Philip right here. It might have been just this inner prompting. It might have been through another person. But here's what we do know. We don't know how he spoke. We know that he spoke. You see, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 59 times in the book of Acts. And 40 of those times, he is speaking. And here's the question that I want to ask you right here. Do you hear God speaking to you? No, seriously. You might think, well, that's strange. I mean, how is God going to speak to me? Well, what is the greatest promise in Scripture? The greatest promise in Scripture is that God is with us. And that he is for us. He's not against us, but he's with us. That means that he, you know, I don't, I don't know if there's anybody that you could be with 24-7 without just totally, like, going nuts. But, that, like, God wants you. He doesn't need you, but he wants you. And so he's with you. And so what happens when you're with someone? You communicate. You hear from them. And so what we see right here is that because the Spirit of God is with his servant Philip, there's this obvious implication that if he's with us, he's speaking. So what's happening right here? And let me kind of talk through not just what's going on in this moment, but also what this means for our church. So I, I think that there's a really good chance that what's happening right here is that the Spirit of God is taking the Word of God and is making it practical for the people of God. So that's what ought to be happening in the church. That's what ought, Spirit-filled believer, that's what ought to be happening in your life. And here's part of what I think is going on. There's this thing called Acts 1-8. Before Jesus ascended to the, right, uh, to the right hand of the Father and was seated, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that's locally in, 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 in the city, in Judea and Samaria, that's national, going global, and then to the ends of the earth. And so Philip would have remembered that promise. And when he saw, he started piecing together what was going on around him to the word of God revealed to him. And when he sees the persecution of Stephen, when he sees the gospel being driven outside of Jerusalem because of pressures and problems, he pieces it together. This is a part of God's sovereign plan and nothing is wasted. If God can turn a crucifixion into a resurrection, then he can bring revival on the other end of persecution, on the other end of problems. And so Philip says, I remember Jesus saying that. This is a part of his plan, so I'm going to continue to trust that. And sure enough, that's what happens. The gospel goes to where? Samaria. And what does this mean for our church? There was a point a couple of years ago when God really started putting it on the hearts of 25 adults to move for the sake of mission, to, to come to Myrtle Beach and Conway, to start Coastway Church. 
You know, we saw that God was starting something historic here. The fastest growing city in the United States. Subdivisions are being built faster than local churches. And we as conscientious, spirit-filled believers who feel a personal responsibility for Acts 1-8 happening today said, we got to do something. And so we moved. We, we relocated uh, jobs. We transferred schools. We sold homes. And we moved here to start what you're seeing right now. Why? Because the Spirit of God was taking the Word of God and He was making it practical for the people of God. And so now what are we doing locally here in our Jerusalem? We're partnering with crisis pregnancy centers so that, that millions of babies will have the chance at life and millions of mothers will have the chance to have the support and the care that they need to walk through something that can be very scary. We want to bring renewal here. But nationally, here on July 17th, we're going to be announcing our first national church planting partnership. It's going to be powerful. It's going to be great. But globally, we just had a team, our first international mission trip, just got back last week from the Dominican Republic, and they were sharing stories about how the gospel is multiplying through our partnership there and through our presence there. And so what do we see? We see that the same thing that was happening for Philip is the same thing that God is doing in his church today. The question is, are we paying attention? So take a look at verse 29b. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? Uh, by the way, this guy was, this was a smart guy. And if he had a hard time understanding the Bible, it's okay for you to have a hard time understanding the Bible. You know, if you're just, if you leave asking a lot of questions, and if you leave sometimes confused, you would make a great disciple of Jesus. Verse 31, and he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Okay, so the four guys under the carriage are like, great, he's taking hitchhikers right now. This is just incredible. My day was going great. Verse 32. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. It was out of Isaiah 53. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. Where the spirit is moving, his people will be speaking. He opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And so here's what I want to do before we finish reading the rest of the story. is I want to park here for just a few moments and I want to show you what is it that makes faith in Jesus personal? And then we're going to see what is it that makes faith in Jesus public. First of all, I want to talk about personal. What is it that makes faith in Jesus personal? First of all, we see faith is made personal by a sovereign God. Sovereign means in control. So with everything that's going on, only a sovereign God who knows all and controls all could organize this encounter. And so if you just think about like all the plot movements in the story and just the off chance that this would ever happen, only a sovereign God would send Philip away from Samaria where revival was happening. To a desert place, not to mention. <laughs> only a sovereign God would guide this eunuch to Jerusalem, 1,200 miles from his homeland. Only a sovereign God would guide him to the most gospel-centered section in the entire Old Testament that gives clarity about Christ. 
Only a sovereign God would arrange for Philip to overhear him. And only a sovereign God would appoint Philip to explain the gospel to him. And here's a, a very honest question, and it's a good question, is does this stuff still happen? And I want to tell you emphatically, yes. The Christian life is not as boring as we sometimes make it. It's a real life adventure. And it's intended to be exhilarating, exhausting, <laughs> exciting. In fact, I would say, think about how you ended up at Coastway. For some of our commission members, you are here because this still happens. That's, that's how you got connected to our church to begin with. I remember one time we were basically sharing, uh, sharing some love and some care with the community at my previous church, and it was kind of in the inner, inner city, and it was like a lower-income context, and there were these inflatables that were set up, and so it was for all the kids in this apartment cluster where we were engaging and serving. And um, I see, um, I see this, this black lady who's on the sidewalk and is watching her grandchildren, and I go up to her, and I introduce myself, and I say, hey, my name is Jeremy, and she introduced herself. Her name was Irma, and uh, I just started kind of asking her some questions about herself, and uh, I just offered to pray with her right there. I said, is there any problems or pressures in your life that I might be able to serve you with prayer right now? And she told me, and then I prayed for her, prayed the gospel over her, and I said, would it be okay for me just to share with you how God's changed my life and how he could change your life? And so right there, I walked through the plot movements of the gospel, and she hears it, she receives it. She transfers trust fully and finally to Jesus by faith right there on the sidewalk and started inviting me and some of the other ministers at the church where I was serving to come in and read Bible stories to her kids. It still happens. It's not whether or not the Spirit is moving. It, the question is, are we putting himself, ourselves in the path of his movement? Maybe you've heard this word before, serendipity. Serendipity is a... Don't, don't say I never taught you anything. This is a big word right here. Okay, Serendipity means happy accident. That's what the world calls uh, what we call sovereignty. We don't believe in serendipity. We believe in sovereignty. We believe that there's a sovereign God who knows all, controls all, and whenever we put ourselves in the path of his power, in the path of his presence, by the truth of his word, we're going to see stuff like this happen. Maybe you've heard the phrase divine appointment. That's what this was for Philip and the eunuch. That's what this could be for some of you today. And so the next way that faith is made personal is through a sent witness. A sent witness is someone who practices the profession of their baptism. The question here is, uh, will you go where Jesus sends you? And will you obey what he asks you? That's, that's what's at stake when someone gets baptized. Is they say yes to both of those questions. Uh, will you go where Jesus sends you and will you obey what he asks you? And two, two times, I want you to notice this, Philip is commanded to go in this story. First, he's commanded to go to a place. Next, he's commanded to go to a person. And what is his response both times? I will. It's kind of like after being married for a long time, you, it's like you say, I still do. That's what a sent witness does. A sent witness says, I still do do. And you got to understand, what is baptism? Baptism is all about going public with your faith. And obviously, Philip was baptized. You go back to probably in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, that's probably when Philip, even the apostles, were baptized post-resurrection. And that explains his baptism in Acts 2, explains his actions in Acts chapter 8. Verse 27 says, and he rose and he went. So again, I go back to the, the marriage relationship. Go back to the vows. 
What do you say on, on, on that big day when you're standing before the bride and the groom? And you, you say, uh, for, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health until death do us part. You're saying, I do. And I was meeting with a mentor of mine this past week. He's been married for 41 years. And I try to get time with him once a month and just have him invest in my marriage. Uh, he's been investing in my marriage for over 10 years. It's very healthy. But here's the thing. Whenever we meet with him, he's, you cannot talk to him. His name is Jay. You can't talk to him and not hear about his wife. Why? It's because she, he still does. And you can't get around him and not hear about the most important relationship other than Christ in his life. He's living his vows. He still does. And he bears witness to that commitment. And so in this story... Philip is living his vows as a sent witness. He's taking risks. He's getting uncomfortable. He's sacrificing. Why? Because it pleases the one who first loved him, who his heart so loves. Philip viewed himself as sent. And here's the question I want to ask Coastway Church today. Do you view yourself as sent? Are you personally treasuring Jesus, Christ follower? Honest question. And are you publicly telling others of his love and of his free offer of grace? That's what it looks like to be sent. Next, faith is made personal for the sincerely curious. So there are three basic responses to the gospel message that we will encounter. If we're living as a sent witness, we're going to run into one of three responses. You were one of these three responses before you Transferred trust to Jesus. The first is going to be complacency. You're going to hear complacency. And I will submit to you, this is the majority in Myrtle Beach. So you, you hear a call to be baptized, and it's like, I might get to it later. Today, today's not a good day. I'm not ready to get baptized. And there's a song I've been listening to here lately. It almost like it was, got me emotional. I was listening to it this week. It's called Come Ye Sinners. And in that song, there's this line that says, if you wait until you're better, you won't ever come at all. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, there is life forevermore. <laughs> and I was thinking about waiting to, to do tomorrow what God's told me to do today is like waiting until I get healthy before I go and see the doctor. It's like that's not how the Christian life works. That's what culture's going to say is you gotta, you got to rise up, you got to be good, you got to perform well, and then you'll be accepted. But the good news of the gospel that floods into our hearts is that we don't obey so that we can be accepted. We're accepted already, and therefore we obey. So complacency is one of the, the uh, responses. The other is contempt. This is just someone, complacency is unmoved by the message. Contempt is, I'm opposed to the message. This sounds like you're intolerant, you're regressive. Christians are just a bunch of hate mongers. I mean, it's not very hard to find. You just have to check Facebook and you'll see plenty of it. But then there's also this third response, and this is where grace floods in. You see people who are sincerely curious. Sincerely curious. And I think this will be helpful. I want to show you really quickly from the eunuch five signs that someone is sincerely curious. We see all of them in the eunuch. Number one, the first sign is that someone will stop. They will stop what they're doing, and uh, so this is what the eunuch does. Philip asks the eunuch, he's like, hey, any of that stuff making sense to you? 
<laughs> and he's like, uh, actually, I, I want to invite you. I'm going to stop doing this on my own, and I'm going to invite you to come and help me uh, and sit with him. So they stop. Next is interested. I stands for interested. Interested means, hey, I, I'm hearing, I'm reading the Bible, I'm asking questions, I'm taking notes, I'm, I'm, I'm getting around this as much as I can because I actually am invested in this. And then G stands for uh, give, they will give you their time. They will give you more of their time. I want you to think about how much time it took the eunuch to go to Jerusalem on this trip. I, I want you to notice how he invites Philip to explain more to him. What does this tell us? He's not in a hurry. He's not in a hurry. And N stands for they're going to need help. The sincerely curious is going to need help. Verse 30b, do you understand what you're reading? Verse 31, how can I unless someone guides me? Now, this is really important because when the eunuch had gone to the temple, which is where people worship God in Jerusalem, he would have seen a sign on the outside that said, no eunuchs allowed. And so this would have left, left him very conflicted and curious about, well, does this mean that there's no place for me in the kingdom of God? Does this mean for me that I can't worship God as well? And so here's what's going to happen when someone's sincerely curious is they are going to need help. And then the S stands for they see sin as their greatest problem. And I would submit this is the great equalizer of true faith and true baptism. Do I see myself as a guilty sinner by nature and by choice? Baptism is how we actually acknowledge this. When someone gets baptized, they go under the water and they say, I deserved to die. But Jesus traded places with me, and by faith, his death somehow counts for me. And so I don't have to die the death that I deserve to die because Jesus died a death that only I deserve to die. And then when you come out of the water, you're saying, Jesus' death brought me life. My sins have been washed white as snow, as the song that we were singing earlier declares. And so who is it? who's the people who get biblically baptized and go on to live for Jesus? It's not the people who view sin as a common cold, but as terminal cancer. And what you see is you see sin is infecting and affecting every part of my life. It's the reason why I have marriage problems. It's the reason why I have relational problems. It's the reason why... I, I'm not responsible with money. It's the reason why I'm impatient. It's the reason why I, I have all of this confusion sexually. It's the reason why I have all of these disordered desires. All of it. If we see sin for what it is, we're going to see it as something that will do one of two things. It will suddenly or it will subtly kill us. It will drive us to our grave. And Jesus is the only cure and here's what you need to see with the eunuch. The eunuch saw his sin this way. And he said, is there any place at the table for me? And what's really, really amazing is this section of Scripture where the eunuch was reading. If you go and you read Isaiah 56, 4, it was in that same section. Philip probably pointed him to this verse. It's God talking to eunuchs saying, I have a place for you in my house. I will make a monument with your name within my walls and I will give you an everlasting place above that of a son, above that of a daughter. The eunuch would have seen this and he would have said, I don't deserve that. Which leads to this fourth observation. Faith is made personal because of a sinless substitute. 
The passage this eunuch was reading in Acts 8, 32-33 comes out of Isaiah 53, which was a prophecy that was all about Jesus that was written 800 years prior to his arrival. And in these verses, Isaiah predicts that Jesus would be like a perfect sacrificial lamb. He would die because of sinners and he would die instead of sinners. And all of this came true. You see, when Jesus stood before Pilate at his trial, he was accused of crimes that were punishable by death. But what does the text say? It says, like a lamb before his shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. I love how Pastor J.D. Greer puts this. He describes about the silence of the lamb before his accusers. Because what happens when you're standing in a court of law and you don't say anything to defend yourself, but you're innocent? What are you, what are you saying right there? Well, you're conceding guilt. But Jesus wasn't guilty, so why didn't he say anything? It's because he was conceding guilt, but he wasn't conceding his guilt. He was conceding my guilt. He was conceding your guilt. He's saying, yes, they're guilty, and... There is no plea other than my perfect life in exchange for theirs. And this is why the same passage reads, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the punishment that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we have been healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. Thank you, Jesus. It has saved my life. Loved ones, let me ask you. Do you see Jesus this way? Do you see Jesus taking your worst in exchange for His best? If not, you cannot say that your faith is personal. You can say it's outside of you. It's something that you you believe that, but you don't believe upon. You have to see Jesus this way. You see a sovereign God. You see a sent witness, you see the sincerely curious, and you see a sinless substitute. But here's the deal. (laughs) That's, That's what makes faith personal. But when faith becomes personal, it doesn't remain private. Well, let me show you this. In the next few verses, we're going to see how personal faith becomes public faith. Verse 36, take a look. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And here's what I want to do. I want to interact with two questions really quickly right here. Who should be baptized? And what would prevent you from being baptized, even today? Number one, who should be baptized? You see, when we baptize, we always ask two questions. Just insert your name right here. Do you believe that Jesus has done everything necessary to save you? And you answer yes, you say, Jesus is my rescuer. But that's not enough. There's another question. Will you go wherever he sends you and do whatever he tells you? That means you see Jesus as your king. If you see Jesus as your rescuer, but not as your king, you're going to make your own laws, and you're going to live according to what is best in your eyes. And he's basically going to be a friend with benefits. If you just see him as your king, but you don't see him as your rescuer, you're going to have a wrong view of him, and you're going to be an angry, judgmental person. You have to see him as rescuer. You have to see him as king. If yes, then baptism symbolizes that answer. And just like married couples, you know, you wear that wedding ring. You hold that up proudly and publicly. That is a physical symbol of the relationship that you have exclusively committed yourself to. And that's what baptism does. It says the same thing. So three groups who should be baptized. Group one, you've never transferred trust. 
wholly and solely upon Jesus Christ by faith. You've never done it. But over the course of our time today, or maybe conversations that have been happening on the way in, you're deciding that today is the day and you will follow Jesus. That's what happened with the eunuch. I pray it's happening with some of us. Group number two, you're a genuine Christian. You've accepted Jesus, but for whatever reason, COVID, crisis, confusion, you've delayed this step. And the Spirit of God is pressing into your heart and He's saying, today is the day. Group three, you were baptized at some point in the past, but it didn't symbolize true surrender. So basically, you were baptized before you truly believed, and it was a reflection of someone else's faith, not your own faith. That's not the pattern that we see in Scripture. It's never baptism, then belief. It's always belief, then baptism. So the question is, are you in any of those categories? If so, you should be baptized. There is no question you need to be baptized if that's you. Question two, What would prevent you from being baptized? (laughs) Well, some will say, well, it's not that important. I can love and follow Jesus without baptism. Here's the problem. If Jesus is your king, then you do what he commands. Jesus commanded baptism. It's, it's It's not something that he says, hey, when you feel like it, when you want to, this is an option. Maybe it would be nice if you go over here and do this. No, he says, go, therefore, and make disciples and be baptized in my name. And uh, I think it's, it's important for us to think about, like, who are we to decide what parts of the Bible we will and will not obey? If we've placed ourselves under the lordship of Jesus, this is his word, we do what he says. Like, could you imagine, we don't apply that logic to anywhere else in life. You show up to your job for the first day you've been hired, you're excited about it, you go to work, your boss gives you an assignment, and you say, I don't feel like doing that. Okay, you might not have a job. <laughs> You go in and your professor says, you start a class, and your professor says, hey, do these things, and you're just like, I'll do these, but I won't do that. It's like, fail. You know, your favorite D1 athlete goes into practice and tells the coach what plays he will and will not run. He gets cut, and he's no longer a D1 athlete, and he ends up on some Netflix documentary. So here's another, uh, here's another excuse. Well, um, I didn't bring any clothes. We got you covered. We have everything you need. You're going to have access to more than what the early church had access to at Pentecost. How about that? Next, my family and friends aren't here to see this. I'll just say this is too important of a decision for you to put off any longer. Most baptisms in Acts happen without physical family present, but always with spiritual family present. And by the way, we'll take pictures. If you've got one of those dumb phones, the opposite of a smartphone that doesn't take pictures, hey, we'll take pictures for you, and we'll make sure that you get a video of it, and you you can... Show everybody, it'll be great. Or maybe you're saying, I rode with people. If they leave you, we will give you a ride. I promise you, we will give you a ride. You will will make it home. I'm not sure I'm ready. I still have questions. Great. This is your opportunity to start the conversation and get the clarity you need so that you can follow Jesus fully. And if you're not ready, if you're genuinely not ready after you talk to a member of our care team here in just a few moments... We'll give you this shirt and you can still keep it. How about that? Good deal, huh? I was baptized as a child. Me too. I was baptized when I was four years old, but it was baptism before belief, and the biblical pattern is always baptism, then belief. I was baptized. Check this out. This was humbling. I, was, uh, I had just been ordained as a pastor. I was 23 years old, and I had just baptized about 10 people at a late baptism at my previous church, and I went to one of my pastors, and I said, I need to get this right, and he baptized me the same day that I was baptizing people. Like, what's your excuse? Seriously? 
How much do you mean business? Again, you get to keep the shirt. I don't want to shame my parents. It's like your parents baptized you with the desire that you would walk in faith. What better way to fulfill that desire than by taking ownership on your own initiative and saying, this is my faith. This was what my parents wished for me the whole time. And maybe you'll say, it's embarrassing to get wet in front of everyone. Do you understand what Jesus did in front of everyone for you? That he was beaten, that he was bloodied, that he was berated. To be ashamed over something so trivial is a deeper issue of the heart. And what do we see in this story? We have a man who didn't wake up expecting to be touched and transformed by Jesus. And through an encounter, he's compelled to go public. Look ahead at verse 38. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, by the way, that doesn't sound like he got sprinkled. This was the full treatment, baby. The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. So let me give you a summary of what baptism produces. Joy. Joy. The logical end of the eunuch's baptism is that he's responsible for spreading the gospel to Africa. Verse 40, but Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So what do we see? We see that real faith in Jesus, it's personal. It's personal. But, but it's also public. That's what real faith is. We need more real faith. We need more men, women, and children who are going to say, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I'm proud, and I want to go public. And here's the, here's the invitation if that's you, for all of us. If you have been biblically baptized by immersion and after conversion like Philip, then will you remain public by viewing yourself as sent? But if you're here today and you've never been biblically baptized the way that we have spoken about, like the eunuch, will you do so today? The moment of conviction is the moment of decision.